Greetings, Princeps. Welcome to the ninth episode of the God Machine Cast, a podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus war game produced by Games Workshop. In this show, I am going to cover a detailed look at the optional rules in the Titanicus core rulebook and a discussion of many house rules that can be used to enhance the game of Titanicus, both these optional rules and many others. But before all that, podcast news. I'm once again asking you to help me build the community by uh, reaching out to your friends and uh, fellow gamers who play Titanicus, introduce them to the podcast, um, rate and review the podcast as it will help other people find the podcast easier. Um, I'm available on many different applications, so go to your app of choice and uh, rate and review. To keep up with updates from the show, you can follow me on Facebook at GodEngineCast or at GodEngineCast. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but I'm not really updating it very much. Uh, Twitter's not really my social media of choice. Um, you can also email me at god.engine.cast at gmail.com if you have any questions you wish me to answer or a feedback for the show. And as I said in last week's show, uh, I've given up being a weekly podcast for the duration of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, expect an episode every three or four days. Um, we'll see how much time I have to do for research and uh, when I'm able to run up to my closet to do some recording. But whenever I have a show ready, uh, I'll be publishing it, so keep your eyes out. Okay, so as this podcast is going to be the podcast coming out closest to the end of the week, I'm going to include a short hobby update about what I've been doing. Well, mostly I have been continuing my slogging through to finish off the titans I've been working on. Uh, I have put basing material on all my recently painted knights and the Reaver Titan and Warhound I've recently finished. And I'm currently in the process of painting them up and detailing those bits. Uh, I've also gone through the Reavers, which I've had the transfers put on and uh, uh, weathered them up. And I've started weathering the Warhounds. I'm hoping that within the next week I can get all this process done and be and have the three Reavers, my three Warhounds, and my Knights all ready to have a quick trip outside when the weather's right so I can seal them all. The last couple of days have been really good for sealing them, but they aren't ready yet, and I'm not rushing myself to get them done. There's going to be plenty of days of good weather here in the next couple of weeks, so I'm not in a hurry. And it's not like I'm going to be carting these models up to Oklahoma City anytime soon, uh, it looks like it's going to be the end of May before I get anywhere with the uh, lockdown in place. So, not really rushing there. Um, I'm trying to get my basing done right. I spent some time putting some pipes on from the uh, Sector Mechanicus kits, uh, and they look really good. Um, I know I was a little sceptical when I was putting those kits together about what I'd do with these small-scale pipes, but they do look really great as basing detail. And I think because of that, I'm probably going to end up picking up another box of that scenery here before too long. I got some money for my birthday that I haven't spent. And uh, while I'm not rushing off to fill any orders now, um, with a COVID-19 outbreak, it's not the best time in the world to be ordering stuff. I may order something here in a week or two, or wait until Games Workshop reopens and order it from the mothership. But we'll see. Um, right about now, I'm just trying to concentrate on getting my hobby cleaned out. Uh, I put aside all the models that I've yet to start, so my Warbringer, my second 
Warhound Titan, my last Warhound, and the four uh, Serastus Knight Lancers. Uh, and they're sitting in a separate box. Um, I'm going to start painting them when I've got every other model I started work on finished. Uh, once I've finished all the other models, and most of those are pretty close to be done now, everything's had their transfers applied. Uh, once I've done those, finished those models, I'm going to seal them and then I'll start work on the models that have yet to be touched. Um, so hopefully that's going to probably take me a month or so, uh, which will be, you know, around the time I get to start wandering back out in the world and I'll have a mostly painted Titanicus force. At some point I'm going to have to take a break from Titanicus. Uh, it's inevitable. I've been doing it pretty consistently now for the last four months. So I did spend a bit of time this week going through my boxes of other models I've got and may start to paint something else. Uh, I've got some Necromunda scenery I've been working on here and there. But, I don't know, Age of Sigmar is calling to me again. Uh, I'm a big fan of my Chaos in Age of Sigmar. So I may paint up a few of uh, Chaos Warriors as a change in pace. But I don't know. In many ways, this podcast is keeping me pretty firmly tied to Titanicus at the moment. Although I'm not rolling any dice, I'm looking at the books and are pretty deep in the Titanicus lore most of the time. Which is good. Um, it is something that's helping me through these trying days. So anyway, let me know what you're working on. I'm happy to talk to other people about their hobby. Uh, as I mentioned the other day, I've got a voicemail box system set up on the Anchor main website. So if you wish to leave something for me to talk about, uh, leave me a voicemail. It'd be great. So yeah, until next time. Thank you. Okay, so I have no community questions today. But I did have some feedback in regards to my coverage of uh, the War Griffins, uh, Leader of Griffonicus. Um, and from it, I've got a correction to make and a couple of other thoughts to have. Well, first up, in the podcast, I was kind of dismissive of using the Venator Manipal with Legion Griffonicus. I foolishly thought that only one Reaver could be the Reaver allowed to shoot um, when a shield was taken down by the Warhounds of the Manipal. That was FAQ'd a long time ago, and I should have known better. And it does change things quite a bit with that Manipal. Running that Manipal with uh, two Reavers and three Warhounds is really interesting. Um, it gives you plenty of opportunities to get some really good shots on when a, the Warhounds take down the shields. Also, by swapping out one of the Reavers for a Warhound, you get the opportunity for the Subreactors, which, as mentioned in the show, are particularly powerful. So yeah, I think the Venator Manipal is something you need to take a close look on if you're playing uh, Legion Chronicus Force. Um, it doesn't play very well with some of the other rules, uh, within, but there's a place for it. And that sort of wraps up the community questions for the day. Um, as I just mentioned the podcast news, if you have any, please send me some. I'm doing a lot of podcasts now, so uh, I'm burning through the questions. Okay, so now we move to the main section of the show. I'm going to start by discussing the optional rules found in the Titanicus core book. Now... At the start of this section, there opens with the following paragraph. I'm going to read it its entirety, as I think it's important for us to remember its purpose. This section contains extra rules which add more complexity to Abdictus Titanicus. Unlike the advanced rules, they are not to be considered part of the core game. Instead, they are included for those who do not mind adding some complexity in exchange for a richer experience. In order for some or all of these rules to be used, both players must agree upon it first. Now... The key word they use several times in this section is complexity. Complexity is a code word that means 
The games are going to take extra time and be a lot more paperwork. Titanicus already is a very complicated game, and adding extra wrinkles to it make the game a more tiring experience to play. So, I view these rules with caution. I like using several of them, but I don't use them all, all the time. There are times I don't want to play with these rules because I want a quicker game. I want a game that's not going to get bogged down in the details. Uh, maybe I haven't got the brain power to do it. It's my third game of the day. Or, you know, I'm just drinking a beer and just want to keep the game on rules I can understand. These are definitely rules you should not be including in someone's first couple of games. Uh, and I think a long campaign weekend, if I was to run a weekend event, would be very careful with using these rules. I'm going to talk about each of these rules and uh, sort of make my comments on whether, whether I think they should be included regularly in the game. Uh, some of them shouldn't be. Some of them don't add much complexity at all, and there's probably been thrown in most games. Okay, so the first rule is overloading of void shields. This rule represents that a princept may give the command to overload the titan void shield generators by passing the fail-safes. Um, this is interesting. When this rule is in use, you can declare that you're going to overload their void shields when taking a shield safe. And then, for the duration of the incoming attack, your void shield level is 2+, meaning you're going to make any void shield saves on a 2+. While you're doing this, you can also push voids to full, which means you cannot get the reroll once. Now, if you fail a void shield save, as in you roll a 1, your void shields collapse. And once they collapse, the void shield generators are destroyed. You remove the void shield marker from the track and the shields cannot be reignited that during the game. So, this is actually a pretty simple rule. Um, I don't think there's a huge amount more complexity to this than the standard shield rules. So, I'm open to including this in nearly any game. Uh, my only pause with it is that it's a rule I will never use. Or... As of yet, I've never been like, I think it's time to overload my void shields. I've never seen it in a game, never been in that position. Generally speaking, going voids to full is generally better. Uh, being able to re-roll the ones is generally more useful when you're in a 3 plus save. Uh, and by the time you're getting to the 4 plus save range, I don't know. It's... I just, I never wanted to use it and I never thought about using it in a game. And we've even talked about using it beforehand, and then it's just not been something I've done. I think the only time I would probably do it is if I had a critically damaged Titan that had managed to get its Void Shields back up, and was looking at trying to make a round of saves to keep those Void Shields up, so I could do another round of repairs. Um, but if I was faced with any serious firepower, I don't know. So anyway... I would advise everyone to try and include this rule in their games. If you're running a campaign or um, an event, I'd include it within the rules you're using. It's not going to hurt. It's not really going to add anything extra to the game. And actually, Titans losing their shields completely are going to speed the game up. So, in this sense, the added complexity isn't a problem. Um, yeah, probably should be a main rule, in my opinion. It's pretty simple to run. The second optional rule available in Titanicus is the Destroying Terrain Special Rule. Okay, so this rule is very simple. 
any piece of blocking train on the table is assigned an armor value, and should that blocking train be hit, you roll to penetrate the armor as if it was an enemy unit. Should you penetrate the armor on a five, you roll a d6 on a five or more, that piece of blocking train is removed and replaced with a piece of difficult terrain. Um, if your penetration roll was a five or more, so five over the assigned armor value, you roll a d10 to see if it's destroyed instead. This is the optional rule I think I play with the most. But it is also the optional rule that is going to add the most complexity to the game. You have to work out a way to assign values to every piece of scenery on the table. And in a small game, that's probably not many buildings. But, I don't know, in many of the games I play, I'm running 20 plus pieces of scenery on the table. And it can take some time, um, especially forming an agreement with your uh, opponent. Um, it's definitely something that's going to really be complicated in a sort of game day affair where you've only got limited time at the start of the game. Um, as such, a good gaming group needs some sort of house rule in place to sort of quickly move past this. So I'm going to come back to this particular rule here in a bit when I look at house rules. But yeah, as it is in the book, it's really, really good. Adds a good element of dramatics to the game. But it really does add something to the complexity and therefore the time it's going to take to play the game. So while I recommend this rule, it is a rule you do need to pay attention to whether you're going to use or not. Sometimes it's just not going to be worth it. Um, yeah. The next optional rule is the stray shots rule. Um, this is a really fun one. But I will say this at the moment. I've actually not used this optional rule. Um, usually we've talked about using it in my local group, but we never end up using it. We forget that we're planning on using it at all. We just get caught up with the game. So this rule is used to show that shots don't just disappear when you miss with them. Occasionally, they're going to hit something that you don't want it to hit. So if you're using this optional rule and you roll a one to hit, the shot that you've just missed with has a potential to become a straight shot. What you do at this point is draw a line from the Titan's weapon to its maximum range in the direction that the shot was fired. Um, all units and blocking terrain, if you're using the destroying terrain's optional rule, are, op are potential targets for this stray shot. So, starting at the closest potential target along this line, you roll a dice. Uh, on a 5 or a 6, the shot hits that target rather than the target was aimed at. Um, once it's hit, you resolve the attack against that target with the facing of the uh, direction of shot. If you don't roll a 5 or a 6, you move on to the next target and roll the d6 again, and so forth until you either roll a 5 or a 6 on one of the potential targets, or you reach the maximum range of the weapon. Now, as I said, I haven't actually used this rule, but I think that itself tells me that it's a fairly complicated rule. It's one we've started games planning on using, and then we've forgotten about. Um, yeah. I really like the idea of it. Um, it's thematic, especially when you're using the Destroying Terrain special rule, optional rule. But, yeah. Um, I need to remember it when we're actually playing a game and actually put it to use. I think it will add some really good cinematic moments. But, um... Yeah, it's an odd one. When I've used it properly in a game, I will talk about it more in the future. Um, 
But now, I mean, I label this as perhaps the most complex rule in these optional rules. And the one that I would probably be most skeptical of using. Um, especially in larger games, I think this is a, a rule I would not include. Um, especially in, like, organised play. You know, if you're trying to play three games in a day, it may be one to leave behind. Probably should be kept in the sort of a cinematic uh, mode box, you know. When you want to play that great-looking, highly detailed game you're going to play all day. That's when you pull out this rule. Okay. Now, I mentioned in the FAQ episode that I actually thought that the current errata on blast weapons scattering, if you've shot a target over their maximum range, probably should be included in the stray shot rule. And I'm going to stand by that. Um, if you're going to use stray shots, make sure you're going to be scattering those blasts at which go to maximum range. And if you're not using stray shots, you probably can ignore the maximum range blasts. Um, they're very similar rules. They're to resolve resolve issues of where shots go when they miss. And uh, in most games, when you're just grabbing a quick beer and want a, a quick hour-long game, if you're going to play, you know, a 1,000 or 750-point game, you don't really want the time to resolve those points. Um, but, you know, if you're playing a more longer, detailed, thematic game, eh, it's definitely worth using these rules. Okay, so the final optional rule is power transfer. This is a really interesting rule that basically allows you to tra transfer power from your shield to power weapons or your locomotives. In essence, you declare before you roll your reactor dice, when you have to roll the reactor dice, that you aren't going to take this power from your reactor, but you're going to take it from your shields. If you do that, you roll the dice. And then you lower your shield by the number of reactor dice shown on the dice. I.e., if you roll a 1 or a machine spirit, you're going to lower your shield by 1. If you roll a 2, you're going to lower your shields by 2. This is interesting. Um, oh, and if you have to lower your shields by 2 and you've only got one level of shields, you take out your shield and then you put one on your reactor. Uh, you can only do, do this, obviously, if you've got operational shields. Um, I kind of like this rule. I've used it once or twice myself, um, and it's one that I, again, like overloading the void shields, probably should just be in the main rules. It adds a level of complexity, I know, but it's not that much complexity. Uh, it will come up very infrequently, and when it does, it, you know, shows the cunning of the princeps. That said, it isn't a rule you're going to be using all the time. It's much easier to drain heat from your reactor than it is to put up your void shields again. So most of the time, you're going to want to be putting heat more than you're going to want to be lowering shield levels. And it's going to be very rare that you're going to be sitting in a position where you can afford to lose shields more than you can afford to gain heat. I'm not saying it won't happen. I've been there. I've been sitting there with a Titan with one heat off red, but with a full pile of shields. And I know if I go to that red point on the reactor track, there's going to be a good chance I'm going to lose all my shields next turn anyway when I roll the dice for the reactor overload. So at which point I'm like, I may as well take the energy from my shields and use it before it goes away. So there's that. Um, I like it. Uh, I don't think it has a huge amount of complexity to the game. It gives you just another option in your toolbox. And I think that's good for Titanicus. Um, 
And I'd encourage basically everyone to use this rule. Um, there's not a reason not to be using it, I don't think. And definitely all event organizers should, should be allowing it in their event packs. It's just a simple rule. It doesn't add too much complexity, but it does add a lot of flavor. Um, and that's all of the optional rules. I think the two evolving shields are really simple and probably should be in the main rulebook. I don't see any real point in having them as optional rules. Apart from the fact they aren't rules you're going to use much. Um, they're both little tricks that you don't pull out unless you really need them. Um, so, yeah, it's just... I probably could play 10, 20 games without needing to use them. There'll be the one game when you can use them and it will save your bacon. But the other two rules are the most thematic. They add something wonderful to the game. I mean, they are going to increase the cinematic nature of the game, the immersion of the game immensely. But they both significantly will make the games take longer. And I think they do need to be considered very optional. Um, events need to be very careful about their use. And uh, when you're sitting down to play with a friend, really consider whether you want to add the extra time it's going to take to use those rules. Uh, it can just be simpler just to get on with a quick game and not worry about it. Uh, less things to keep in your head, less tiring the game's going to be, which is a factor, especially if you're planning on playing a lot of games in one day. Anyway, both these rules can be made better with some additional house ruling, which is what I'm going to go and look at next. Um, I'm going to now go through some house rules, um, ones I've had people suggest to me while I've been running this podcast, and ones I use myself, and a few I've seen around the web. I'm going to discuss them in the sort of same manner as these optional rules. Um, give people a toolbox of uh, different rules they can apply to make their games better. Okay, so the first house rule I'm going to discuss is one me and my friends developed in my local gaming group. Basically, we really liked the destroyable terrain optional rule, and we felt it added something to the game. But we weren't happy with how long it was taking us to decide what armor values each piece of terrain would have. So, we decided to come up with a simple formula that we could use and agree to at the start of the game that would just apply across the uh, table. Basically, we assign a set value plus a number generated from the height of that piece of scenery in inches. Most of the time, we are using the number 7. So, a piece of scenery that is 4 inches tall would have an R value of 10. Uh, we have some pretty tall structures that, you know, border on, you know, 7 inches tall, at which point they have a value of 14, or if not more, if they're taller. Now, yes, I know this isn't how engineering works. The taller buildings aren't harder to destroy. But there is a game balance issue. The taller buildings are the buildings that block more line of sight, and are thus are the more important pieces of scenery to keep on the table to close off firing lanes. So by assigning them the higher value, we keep the game fairer, um, as it will take more work to destroy the more important pieces of scenery. Now, a, perhaps a different way to do this would be to play with the actual values on the dice roll you need to roll to destroy a building. Perhaps the taller buildings have a lower armor value, but need more hits before they are completely destroyed. But again, that's moving to a place of adding more complexity to a game. And although increasing the cinematics of it, we're looking for a game we can play several of in a day. That's why agreeing on a simple formula that can be applied to multiple tables across an entire event worked pretty well for us. And like I said, the value of 7 plus inches high seems to work pretty well. I think at some point we are going to play around with having different buildings having a different base value, especially with the introduction of the uh, industrial scenery. 
um, maybe they'll have a lower initial value. Um, but again, that's something that can be agreed upon and included in event packs pretty easily. Um, you can clearly identify the type of scenery you've got and give it a set numeric value that you just apply to its height. Um, yeah, I think people should try it out um, or come up with a variant of it. It's a, it's a pretty simple way to make a rule that added a lot of complexity to our games a lot more usable. And after all, that's what we're trying to do, make, game, make a system that allows us to use these rules. Okay, so moving away from my own local group, I spent some time asking other groups about what rules they were using continually as a sort of improvement to the game. And what I frequently got back was in the use of templates and blast weapons. Basically, it is considered by many, gentlemanly, to replace the template squarely on the center of the model you are targeting, whether it be a building or an enemy titan. If it misses, it's going to scatter, but you shouldn't be trying to place templates with the center hole right on the corner of an enemy base. So it's while it's still wholly over an enemy base, it's not really over the enemy titan. And that means that blast weapon is hitting multiple other titans. Now, while that is correct in the rules, um, there was basically a feeling that it was somehow not very friendly and that you really should be centering the template in the middle of the enemy titan. Or at least so the center hole is completely over the central body of the titan. I can see where people are going with this. Um, although I have in times placed the blast marker of a small plasma blast gun in a position so it can get multiple enemy titans when they're all close together for sharing shields. Uh, yeah, I think for the most part, blast weaponry needs to be played a little bit more carefully and it makes the game easier. If you know that you're going to be placing the model squarely over the center of a, the enemy titan, it there's less chance of arguments and it's just a simpler thing to do. Um, it's an interesting house rule. Um, I don't think I'll be using it in my local games. I don't think I need to with my friends. But if I was running a, you know, large 20, 30 person tournament or, you know, narrative event, it may be worth including it in the uh, pack just to make things simpler and be one less place of disagreement between players. I mean, when you have people of different gaming cultures meeting, it can be useful just to remove things that are going to cause disagreements or feelings of bad blood. And maybe this is one of them. Additionally, I've seen two other conversations about this particular house rule that had some points that I also want to throw in here as sort of a closing on this section. First, uh, there was a very strong agreement that this rule centering on a model has to be used for enemy when you're targeting a building and with the destroyable terrain optional rule. Um, if you let people place the blast templates where they want on a building, you can kind of place it in a way to allow you to lap off and place the template so it's overlapping models that your Titan can't see. So, for example, you have a large Civitas building that's about eight inches high. You have a Volcano Cannon Warlord on one side of it, and the enemy has a couple of knights hugging the back side of it. You fire a Volcano Cannon at it, and you place the template so it's the central hole is completely covered the building, but you're putting that on the far end, on the far side from where you can see. And the majority of that Volcano Cannon template is now not on the building, and instead over the enemy banner that's hiding from you, and you can't actually draw a line of sight to them. Uh, 
the rules as is, you hit those knights. And that's not very friendly. Um, so their house rule is that you have to keep the template centred. I mean, it stands a chance still of you being able to hit targets you can't see, but you don't get to do it as a choice. And the second addition is that um, you, if you shoot with a blast template and take a minus two to hit penalty, like you're making a targeted shot, that's when it, you can place your center hole of the blast weapon anywhere on the enemy base rather than at the center of the base. Um, I kind of like that. I mean, that does give you the freedom to place blast templates. So you can try and get multiple titans with one hit. Uh, but at the same time, it makes the game mostly simple, that most of the time you're just going to place the blast model right on the center of the base. Um, and maybe that's a good sort of middle ground. I like both these ideas. And like I said before, I think they're probably a really good idea to use if you're running an event. Um, they're just something you can chuck in a pack and just help people work through a potentially contentious part of the game. And any time an event organizer can set out some rules to help people, you know, not argue or just focus on getting to know people and having a positive experience is a good thing and uh, will help your event a lot. Just something to think about. But again, it's not none of these rules are stuff I would probably want to be using in my day to day games. Um, I trust my friends too much. The second consistent area of house rules that I see applied around the world appears to be in regards to the Scatterable Mind Stratagem. Um, at some point, I'm going to review the Scatterable Mind Stratagem in its own section. But let's just say it is very unpopular. More correctly, it is very powerful and is very popular in the hand of many players. So a lot of folk sort of come up with rules about limiting its power. Most of the time, it seems to be uh, not allowing it uh, to be played multiple times in a game, or not allowing it to be applied with other stratagems. Uh, the Unhallowed Earth and Scatterable Minds is a combination that's frankly kind of scary, and uh, stopping people playing them both at the same time seems to be a good idea. Now, to be honest, I haven't used Scatterable Minds a huge amount. Um, I think the fact everyone knows they're kind of powerful has stopped my local group using them too much. Uh, we don't like doing that, playing that sort of card with, against our friends, um, so they haven't been used. Um, but given the conversations I've seen about them, I think anyone running event, again, needs to pay hard attention to what they're going to do about these scatterable minds. And I think any gaming group, especially a gaming group who's going to set out to meet regularly and introduce new players, needs to take a moment to discuss what they're going to do about stratagems. Um, now, I would at this point point people towards the conversation I had stratagems at the end of my Shadow and Iron coverage of stratagems the other week. Um, I think there are good ways to handle stratagems completely differently from how we handle them in the book. Um, pulling them into a deck and just drawing random cards solves a lot of problems. And um, But I think reducing the point costs or reducing the ability to use them multiple times is also useful. Um, which brings me to the next point, really. So um, let's move over to that one. I cannot have an episode talking about house rules without taking some moments to talk about the Mournable rules generated by the Mournable event guys down in Sydney. Now, many of these guys are the brain trust behind the uh, podcasts Eye of Horus and Eye of Horus Engine Kill, uh, and I'm sure they're familiar to many people listening to this podcast. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, take some time, go and look them up. They're a pretty good bunch of guys. But while you're doing that, also go out to one of their sub-pages, the Mournable events, and go to their file section, 
where they have a whole bunch of very professionally put together house rules from numerous games, including uh, Titanicus. If my memory serves me right, they have three separate documents, one on campaign systems, one on weapons and uh, point costs, where they change some point costs for some weapons, and then another on just a general FAQ for the way they want to play the game. Now, the weapon document is particularly interesting to me. Uh, for a start, back in the day, this is where they increased the point cost of the Acastas slightly. But more importantly, they've unlocked a lot of weapon options that used to be back in uh, the old style of Titanicus. Now, I'm not talking about the Corvus Assault pod or anything like that. But I'm talking about, you know, the ability to put warp missiles on the Warlord. Uh, plasma blast guns and melter guns also up there on the Carpace weapons. Um, but they've also given the options for the Reavers to take Inferno cannons on their Carpace. And generally open up those options. So basically all of the Warhound weapons are available as Carpaces on the Reaver. And majority of them are also available on the Warlord, as along with all the other Reaver weapons. Um, and it's kind of how the system's built, and we've all seen it, we've all talked about, oh, I wish I could have done that. Well, they created points and worked out how to run those rules. And generally, they're pretty good. Um, I really like the idea of a Warlord with warp missiles. Um, I really wish they'd been in the game from the start. It's, yeah, something that was definitely an old epic, and it's something missing from the game. Now, that said, I haven't busted out my bits box yet to create convert, convert these weapons up. But perhaps one day I will, uh, if I can convince my friends here in Oklahoma to play with them. Um, but I, they look pretty balanced. Uh, well, mostly balanced. As balanced as Titanicus is. Um, so there's that. And I encourage everyone else to take a look at them. They're at least good for a bit of a smile anyway, and I think about what you would do with these alternate weapons. Uh, the second document I looked through was their campaign system. Um, I'm going to talk about this document in a later episode. I've got a plan already to do a deep dive into the campaign systems of Titanicus, and I think I'm going to compare their system with the ones found in the books. Uh, but it seems to build up on those systems pretty well. Um, and it looks rather interesting, and definitely something I'm interested in using myself. Uh, but they also include some changes in this document to the Crusade Legion rules from White Dwarf. Um, most of these changes are pretty smart. I mean, we've already seen that they've edited the um, Elite Magos rule that uh, Games Workshop's also edited in the new upcoming book, Defense of Riser. But they've also played with the uh, War Doctrine ability to allow you to um, to stop you being able to take just general stratagems as a, at a discounted price. Um, I like it. It's a pretty good little guide to building... Uh, the Crusading Legios, and it looks a little more balanced than the one found in the White Dwarf. Um, I don't know. I think I'll do a deep dive into the Crusade Legio rules when I finally get Defensive Riser. I've been talking about doing it for a while, but now I know it's coming in a new book. I think we'll go into it then. And when that comes up, I'll look at what the uh, Mournival guys are doing and compare and contrast. The final document they have is an expanded FAQ, uh, which builds on the Games Workshop FAQ. And I'll go over that now um, in some depth. So they made a number of changes to the way the game plays. And I think the majority of these are for the better. And I'd encourage most people to look at using these as house rules themselves. Uh, the first one. Um, if you're firing a blast weapon and it's you're using a maximal fire trait. And the shot is at a target that is out of range. As in past the maximum range of the weapon. You must still roll a dice to see if you roll a one to hit. Um, this is to generate the extra heat. Basically, the change in the rules in the last FAQ, where it means that blast weapons scatter at their maximum range, 
this is basically just to throw in to make sure if you're firing those plasma blast guns, you aren't getting free maximal fire shots without generating extra heat. The second big change is that a pile of the stratagems have been reduced to one point, but limited to one use only, but you can take them multiple times. These include the Titan Hunter uh, infantry, the Skatori battalions, uh, thermal mines, and uh, scatter mines, and strapping run. I think this is a pretty good change. Um, a lot of those particular stratagems are really good. I mean, um, artillery strikes being able to be used every turn is really good. Uh, and just knocking it down, just to being able to say, hey, look, you get it once per strategy, but it only costs you one point, is fair. Um, yeah, I like that change. Particularly like the change to the scatterable mines, as I said in the previous section. It's a much maligned uh, stratagem, and making it a one-point stratagem but only getting the one use out of it curtails the problems with it a fair amount. The next big change is that when you're firing a concussive weapon at nights, um, they aren't automatically shaken. Basically, if they take a hit from a concussive weapon under the standard rules, knights become shaken. With the Mournville rules, they get to make a command check, and if they fail that, they become shaken. It's a small change, uh, but it means that concussive weapons aren't an immediate anti-night piece of equipment, which I think is okay. Um, staying with knights, they've also put a new stratagem for knights in. Uh, basically, it's a three-point stratagem that allows you to break a lance up. You apply the stratagem at the start of the game, and it means that instead of a lance in a household battalion having to stay within coherency, the entire um, lance can operate as three separate units. Which is fair. Um, I don't know. I think this is the one point. I mean, it's, they label this one as an optional rule and both players have to be happy using it or it has to be combined within an event pack. I'm a little here about it. Uh, it's pretty easy to generate a lot of stratagems with knights and you could be swamping people with activations, which is a problem. The next uh, big change they list in their own errata is how they handle uh, Titan hits to weapons. Uh, basically... When you take a, part, a number of hits to a weapon and you start assigning the damage, um, if the weapon isn't disabled, the first hit to the weapon disables the weapon and any remaining hits then cause secondary explosions. This is how a lot of people used to run it before the Games Workshop FAQ explained that it took an entire... Once you'd disabled the weapon, all other penetrating hits were discarded. I like this. It means that hits to weapons just aren't so much of a throwaway. At the moment, you know, I land a volcano shot on a weapon and I'm like, well, I've disabled it and that's it. At least with this rule, you land a volcano hit on a weapon, you're probably going to disable the weapon and at least cause at least a minor explosion on the main body. Finally, tucked away at the base of this document and uh, probably more linked to the weapon options of the first document they've got. They also have come up with customer weapon profiles uh, for a variety of knights, including the Strix, the Merc Magara and the Etretopos. Uh, they're all pretty fun, um, but I'm sure pretty soon we're going to see those rules from Games Workshop. So, while it's nice to be throwing them out here, it's more for a completeness. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of wraps up my coverage of house rules. Um, I've gone through the rules I've used, um, the rules I've seen people talk about on a variety of different groups around the internet, and then, uh, Obviously, the Bourneville set of rules. Um, I hope that uh, some of these rules inspire you and you're able to put some to good use. Um, I encourage everyone to take a good look at what rules 
they're using in their games. Optional rules, whether the optional rules from the core book or the optional rules from house rules, uh, help the game. Um, the game is a work in progress. Uh, there's always ways we can make games better and more fun. And uh, we shouldn't be too shy about where we find these rules. Whether the rules you create yourself and use with agreement of your friends, or rules found in uh, packs at uh, events, um, they all help, or at least all should help in theory. Um, I strongly encourage anyone looking to run an event to strongly look about what optional rules and house rules they want in the game. Um, be wary of the rules that add complexity, but also take some time to look at rules that will help minimise arguments and hurt feelings. Uh, I think I've covered a mixture of all of them today. Um, I think some of the FAQs the Warnable guys have put together are good and cover grounds that Games Workshop haven't. Uh, in places, they undo things Games Workshop have done, for better or worse. And we need to... There are times for everything, and I think we're in a place with our game at the moment, uh, Titanic as, as a whole, community-wide, globally, where we're still trying to develop a culture for the game. Uh, we've inherited a lot from the Horus Heresy, uh, 30k players, um, and I think at this time we need to start work as a community to start, you know, sort of saying what we want to see out of games. At least on my part, I want to see narrative games that are fun. I want to see games that aren't really competitive. And I mean that in the... I don't want to be looking at having 200-person tournament games of Titanicus. I want games I can show up to and tell stories of the Horus Heresy and maybe Great Crusade events. I want to be playing games which are fun, which allow me to sit down with a person I've never met before or someone I know very well and roll some dice and laugh as theirs and my own titans are destroyed. Um, I'm very interested in running campaigns. Uh, I think there's a great avenue for campaigns in the game, something I'll cover in the future. And uh, I think quite a lot of the house rules we've discussed today go a long way to enhancing the gameplay. Um, so yeah, tell me what you think. Um, have I missed a house rule you use? Uh, let me know. Uh, I'm eager to hear about more house rules. Uh, send them in. Um, if I get enough in the next week or so, I'll do a part two for this podcast, or I'll just mention them in passing in the future. Um, discussions about the rules and how we use them to tell the stories we want to tell are really important, and they're not something we should shy away from. Well, anyway... That brings us to the end of the show. If you have questions uh, you wish to be included with the next episode, please email me at god.engine.cast at gmail.com or contact me through my Facebook page. Next week's show is going to cover a study of the stratagems from the Doom of Maltec book. This is probably going to be part one of the coverage. There are a lot of stratagems in this book, so I'm probably going to divide it up over multiple episodes. But yeah. Until next time, I wish you well and good fortune, and please stay safe.